0: It's a joy and an honor to be here with you guys and to be here again tonight. It feels like every time we get together, the the current of the river is rising a little bit, doesn't it? Amen. Amen. Waters to swim in. We're we're headed towards. I think. What I want to talk about tonight is a topic that I, w- I was reflecting on it earlier today and realizing that there was a time in my life when this topic would have been a little intimidating to me and a little scary. Um, And maybe there are some here tonight who may feel that way about it. And I apologize in advance, um, except that I really do believe that uh, if you'll come through to learn some of the lessons that I've learned along the way, um, I'll be happy and you'll be happy that we talked about it. So the topic ironically maybe is the joy of the Lord. There was a time in my life when that was a scary thing. Does that sound funny to you or do you identify with that? You know, if I had been in a meeting um, some years ago and uh, someone would have started running around the room like this Amish brother earlier, I would have immediately felt like, oh boy, where are we going with this? And to be around people that expressed That kind of enthusiasm for God, I guess it was the sense that it made me feel like, am I going to have to do that too? Am I going to have to be that happy? (laughs) Isn't that a strange way to think? But I'm guessing that you may be laughing because just a little part of you identifies with it a little bit. And I don't know if anybody told Brother Gabe that that was my topic tonight, but... That was a great opening song. <laughs> I could dance a thousand miles. I could sing unending songs just to think about what God has done for me. Thank you, Jesus. And um, I guess that's the question that I'm, I'm kind of coming at this topic with tonight is, is the joy of the Lord, what part does that play in our lives? Is it something that I mean, everybody would say that they want it, I presume. If you're a believer, you would say you, you love it, you want it, you'd probably even wish you had more of it. Um, but is it something that is uh, an optional thing? Is it something that comes upon us from time to time and is a real blessing from God, um, and we're happy when it shows up? Or is it is it a necessity? Might God even require it from us, that we live in the joy of the Spirit. Is the concept of mandatory happiness one that you're familiar with? In my house, it's a familiar topic amongst my children. From the time they're very young, if they come out... uh, If they woke up on the wrong side of the bed or whatever, and they come out of their room with the sour face and pouting about everything, they will often get sent right back. You are going back to bed until you can come out here with a happy face on. It's mandatory joy. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the funny thing is, it works. <laughs> it does. And, and they don't just act happy, they are happier. And so is everyone else, when someone just says, you know what, actually, you have to be happy. (laughs) It's not benefiting you, it's not benefiting anyone else for you to come here with that kind of attitude, and there's something self-centered about you when you don't want to be happy, and there's something outturned about joy and happiness. Have you ever heard someone described as yeah, they're just really he's a really arrogant and joyful guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Full of pride and full of happiness. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't go together. But we can easily imagine people that we would describe as so humble and so joyful. So that tells us something maybe. Some of you here would have known my mother. Um, She passed victoriously away 23 years ago, and um, she had written down part of her testimony years before that, actually, and I I read it some while back. I I need to get it out and read it again, but I'm pretty sure about the accuracy of what I'm going to tell you, just a little piece of it. She said that when she was a little girl, she... um, She had opened her Bible at some point. Her parents were Methodists, and they went to church on Sunday, but faith wasn't a huge part of life. It was just kind of like what you did. And um, she said that when she was little, she started reading her Bible, and she found a scripture in there. It's in Psalm 16, and it says, "'You will show me the path of life. "'In your presence is fullness of joy.'" And... She said that passage as a young girl impacted her, God, there's, there's some kind of promise in this. There is a pathway that will lead to, to life in your presence where joy can be full. And um, Brother John shared with us, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us. The thing that is supposed to mark us as a people is the presence of God. And this passage tells us that in His presence is fullness of joy. So that ought to be something we're looking for, I think, as a marker of His presence, the place where there is fullness of joy, the the lives in which we see fullness of joy is a life full of His presence. But my mom said that she, you know, she didn't really know her Bible, and she didn't mark where the passage was, and then she said years later she tried to find it, she couldn't find it. And as a teenager, she was in a period of searching for God, and, and she, she lost track of where that passage was, and she could remember it said something about that, but she just never um, was able to locate it until years later when she came back to the Lord, but it stuck with her. There, I guess there's been a lot of ways in which the idea of joy has been cheapened by the world around us, hasn't it? by advertising, by entertainment industry, so on and so forth. Pe- people tend to think of, perhaps, they tend to think of joy as uh, a frivolous thing, or they, they equate it with having fun or doing things that titillate the flesh or, or what have you. But you know, that's not how the Bible speaks about it. You know, that's not how we're talking about it tonight. I'm thinking of the passage where Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a man who finds a treasure buried in a field and having found it, Jesus says, over the joy of having found it, he went and sold everything he had and bought the field. It does not say over the sense of obligation, over having found it, for the joy of having found it, he went and sold everything he had. There was such a radical prioritizing that took place in his life that was not based upon fear of punishment. I know sometimes that's the beginning of wisdom, amen, we, we, we're conscious that there is an end that we do not want to contemplate, and so we turn away from evil, but there's something about this positive motive that Jesus says, this is what the kingdom is like. If you don't feel that way about the kingdom, chances are you hadn't found it yet. If it has not become your motive for sacrifice, if it hasn't realigned everything for you, as the Lord has already been speaking to us about, one thing have I desired, that I might dwell in the courts of the Lord, that I might be in His presence where there's fullness of joy. That's got to be the defining motive, ultimately, I believe, for sacrifice, for the price that we're willing to pay. Brother Rossi's ministered times before about how the call to repentance is always accompanied by promise. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's always a promise in the price that God would ask of us to pay. He doesn't just ask us to go for a life of self-sacrifice that has no reward. It may not have rewards for the flesh, but it has rewards that exceed our dreams in the Spirit. Paul would tell us that if there is no resurrection, we're of all men the most to be pitied. If there is not hope of better things... For us. In Hebrews 12, we find what Jesus's inspiration was for enduring the cross. What was it? Joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And the, what is he telling us there? He's, he's telling us, look unto Jesus. He's the author. He's the finisher of your faith. Let's set aside the sin that so easily entangles us. Let's run with endurance the race set before us. Looking to Jesus, do it like he did it. For the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. It's as if we're not going to be able to endure unless we have a view of the joy. People will change everything for the sake of love. Won't they? When Brother Kevin was sharing with us during Brother Zach's talk earlier about this thing that seized him like, oh boy, this is going to cost me everything. I just have to believe that at some point the reason that you actually did it was because you were able to glimpse that there was something that was going to be worth it. Might I be right about that? You weren't just convinced that God was going to strike you dead if you didn't do it. You probably did it because you had this sense that, could it be true? This dream that Brother Zach was talking about, even if we were just seeing it through a glass darkly, just for the chance that it might be real. Forget this stupid big house in California or wherever. People will change things for love. They'll change things for hope, for life. That's what happens when when people get married, isn't it? Oftentimes, you know, somebody when somebody uh, lines out this thing that and says, "Okay, now if you're going to be part of this, you're going to have to give up your house. You're going to have to uh, be willing to lose your job, lose your money, lose your your um, entertainments. Uh, you're going to have to change the way you dress. You're going to have to change the way that you eat. You're going to have to." Um, and you have to do everything I say. Sound good? <laughs> people would say, that sounds like a cult. That sounds like a cult. But if you take that same equation and you say it's not a have to, it's a want to, because somebody has said, will you marry me? It's probably going to change everything about your life. But w- would you marry me? And for love, people begin to change. And they'll probably change where they live. They may drop their job and become a homemaker. They may uh, change the way that they dress and change the way that they cook and the way that they eat because they want to walk in harmony with their husband. So there's something that we're willing to do that requires positive motivation. Sometimes the beginnings of joy come just in the step to say, let's do it. Let's just start. Let's just make the turn that is repentance, amen? And, and uh, well, Jesus says, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. I guess I've always wondered, who are those people who need no repentance? <laughs> Maybe that's part of his point in a way, manner of speaking. Somebody got it. <laughs> you know. There's somebody who heard the message. Amen. But I'll give you an example from my own life, and this is very mundane. But um, the Lord spoke to me through it, and it stuck with me. It was some years ago. I, I typically will work most days up at our offices at, at the church building in, in Waco, And I live a little ways away, but close enough that it's an easy walk, so I walk often. And I walk uh, through our craft village on the way up to the office. And one day I was walking up there, and I was preoccupied. I had a lot of things on my mind. I was thinking about, praying about, heading towards projects I was working on there. I work in our literature ministry. And uh, going through the craft village, there was hardly anybody around. It was early enough in the morning. And it was one of those things, I don't know if this ever happened to you, where I'm walking along with purpose, and I get about three steps past, and it suddenly registered with me what I just saw. And there had been a wrapper of some kind, a piece of trash, in the craft village on the ground. And I was like a few steps past, and I was like, oh, that, that shouldn't be there. And I kind of kept walking. I said, well, I should have stopped and picked that up. Well, there's other people who do that here. It's not my responsibility directly. And so I'm walking along, and I'm, there's this conflict going on in my mind, and I start thinking about other things for again, and then it comes back to me, you really should have, I mean, it would have only taken a second. But then that thing says, yeah, now it's going to take two minutes because I'm already way down here, and I didn't do it when I should have. Somebody else is going to, somebody will, and this, you know, have, do you ever have this? kind of thing happened to you, where you, you, kinda, you really know the whole time what you should be doing, but you're kicking against it, you're fighting it. Um, and, and anyway, so I go on for quite some time, expecting, I guess, and hoping that this little battle is going to go away, and finally I realize this is not going away. <laughs> I'm kidding myself. I'm going to sit there in my office when I get there and think about that candy wrapper. <laughs> and so I didn't have the time to do it. It was in, you know, but finally I said, I'm going to go pick that thing up. Now, I had a long walk back to the candy wrapper. I thought, you know, I'm probably going to get there and it's going to be gone. <laughs> Somebody else is going to pick it up, And but but no, it was still there. But When do you think I felt the joy of having done the right thing? Did I have to wait until I got to the candy wrapper? No. The second I turned around and set my mind to do what I knew God was telling me to do, I felt this, hallelujah, I've been set free. It was the joy of the Lord. I know that's a stupid example, but seriously, If God is talking to us about those things and we're kicking against them, just do it. Just make the turn, even if it takes a while to get it worked out, even if you can't even get to it for a while, if you'll set your heart and mind to do the will of God, there's going to be a spring in your step as you do it. The joy of the Lord is going to be there. Make up for your lost time. There's a passage you're probably already thinking of um, that I thought of when I started contemplating this topic quite some time ago, actually. And um, it's the passage that says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I guess I heard that passage a lot, but not thought about it in context very much. And I I went to look it up and I, I guess I expected it to be in the Psalms or something. You guys who know your Bible know that it's not, it's in Nehemiah. And uh, when I went and read the context of it, it really got to me why they're saying this where they're saying it. So you know the story of Nehemiah. They've come out of Babylon. They're there to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple as a dwelling place for his name. They're the remnant. And during the process of this, at one point, they, they get out the book of the law. And Ezra reads it to the whole congregation, The whole, I think the whole book of the law. And it says there that all these people, who I won't list their names, but all these people assisted the people to understand the reading of the book of the law. So this is Nehemiah 8. It says, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense of it And they helped the people to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to Yahweh your God, do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now this happens several times in the scriptures where the the law is kind of rediscovered. You know, in those days, I, I don't. it wasn't like everybody had a Bible in their house. And for different reasons, the, the, the kings or the priests would get off track. And so several places throughout the Old Testament, the law is kind of rediscovered, and they get it out, and they're tearing their clothes pretty much every time because, man, we have strayed from what is outlined in this book. So you know that at least some of this weeping has got to have to do with the people recognizing that there's some conviction going on here. We we don't measure up to what God requires in His law, but, but they're telling them, do not mourn or weep. And then He said to them, "'Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength.'" So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Amen. Why do we rejoice at the hearing of the Word of God? We don't rejoice over the sin that it reveals. We rejoice that God has made a pathway out of that sin. What does it say? What does Paul say about love? It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. And that's how it is when you know that you've heard the word of God. There may be cutting. There may be a lot of things that we've got to deal with or leave behind or come to repentance. But oh, the joy that comes with the truth. Oh God, I've heard the truth, and the truth can set you free. And that's really a theme in the Scripture. There's a correlation between hearing the Word of God and joy. I'll read you just a few passages. Psalms 19 and 8 says, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Jeremiah 15 and 16 Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God. Isaiah 29 and 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book. And the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord. And the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And you know Zechariah 4 and 10. For who has despised the day of small things? These seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Brother Howard asked us the question earlier today, how do we respond to correction? That's the word of the Lord too. How do we respond to that? Amen. Well, let's not rejoice in the iniquity that it reveals, but can we rejoice just to see the plumb line in the hands of those who would lead us out of Babylon? Oh, God, there it is. There's the standard. God has a truth. He has a way out. And in this way, perhaps we can even follow the instructions in Hebrews about those who would bring that word of discipline and correction to us. What does it tell us? Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would not be profitable to you. You want to know how to help someone feel joy in bringing the word to you? Feel joy in receiving it. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Everyone loves when joy begets joy. Thank you, Jesus. But if it becomes a grief, because all you can see is the, the hardship of it, then that doesn't bring joy to anyone. Isaiah 55, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, That goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. For it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And what was that thing? Next line. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. And the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That's the intent and the purpose of the word of God that it shall accomplish. In the book of Acts in chapter 8, when Samaria receives the word of God, what does it say? And there was great joy in that city. Jesus said, John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. John echoes his words in 1 John 1. Saying to the church, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The thing about the joy of the Lord, this is probably evident already, is we're going to need it. We're going to go through things in which we're going to need that joy as a light and as an anchor and as a strength for when the road gets long and the battle gets hard. Proverbs 24 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So, can we combine that? Is this all right? If we combine that with the joy of the Lord is your strength, and can we read that verse to say, If you faint in the day of adversity, it's because your joy is small. Insufficient joy in the day of adversity is going to fail. You're going to fail along the way. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. Though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's New King James. Joy is apparently a verb. I will joy in the God of my salvation, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like the feet of a deer, and He will make me walk in high places." Brother Ossie was reminding me the other day, when we talked briefly a little bit about this, um, of a saying that I only encountered when I actually first came to this community as a teenager. Now maybe this is a very common expression and it just hadn't been in our circles. Before we came here But the question would be asked From time to time Do you have the victory? Are you all familiar with that? Yes, Has everybody heard that? Do you have the victory? Or people would say You need to get the victory Or sometimes it would be He lost the victory <laughs> that, that became such household language uh, Apparently my wife was raised With this kind of language So she'll say it about our babies the baby's crying over spilled milk or whatever. It's, uh oh, he lost the victory. <laughs> like the victory is some state of being. It doesn't refer to some particular win in some circumstance. It refers to a condition of your heart. But I think that actually works. I think that's biblical, don't you think? If you think about passages like, this is the victory that overcomes the world your faith not if you have faith you can get a victory your faith is the victory that overcomes the world your posture towards god and towards his promises towards his word is the victory if you've got that right you have the victory even if you're 300 steps from the wrapper You've got the victory. (laughs) Amen. The rappers going to be no problem when you get there. (laughs) Amen. Because you already have what it takes. In Psalm 27, it speaks about... Actually, it's worth looking at that for a second. I didn't write it down. But if I'm not mistaken, that's actually the psalm that says, one thing have I desired, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident, one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And behold the beauty of the Lord to inquire in His temple, for in the time of trouble He shall hide me in His pavilion. In the secret place of His tabernacle He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. In the high places, like Habakkuk said. And now my head shall be lifted up. Where's the, is it in the Psalms where it also says, You are the glory and the lifter of my head. We heard about glory this morning. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing praises to the Lord. Sacrifices of joy. Is joy a sacrifice? What are we... I mean, a sacrifice is something where we are losing something of value to us for a higher purpose, isn't it? We're losing something that costs us something. It's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost you anything. But joy apparently can be a sacrifice, where the Bible wouldn't refer to it as such. When that child gets sent back to his room and told, you're not coming out here until you can put a happy face on, does he have to sacrifice something to get that happy face? What is he sacrificing? His preoccupation with his will. That's it. He's allowing His will to be crucified on some little level that will have to be enhanced as He grows. (laughs) Amen. But it still requires the same thing from you and me. We've got to let go of our self-pity, of our depression, and all those things that actually the flesh loves. We like to indulge all this garbage that makes us unhappy because... We feel that we deserve it. And while we would say, oh, I would love to be happy, if anything would go right, I'd I'd be happy to be happy. (laughs) But are you willing to be happy when there's no cattle in the field? Can you make a decision in your heart, I will rejoice in God my Savior? It is a decision to break our will to God and to become more like Him where faith and love and joy and peace describe our character and our attitude. You know that word, uh, joy there, I looked it up in that Scripture in Psalm 27, and I was surprised to see it means some of what you might expect. It can mean to uh, a joyful shout. It can mean spinning and dancing. And then it had another definition that is sometimes used in the Scriptures. It can mean a call to battle. Do you have the victory? (laughs) If not, you need to get it. Tonight would be a good time. Thank you, Jesus. A call to battle, because the joy of the Lord is our strength in times of battle. You remember with Jehoshaphat, they went out and just said, we're just going to praise God. Sometimes if we just do that like we did at the beginning here tonight, you can feel all kinds of mountains melting like wax in the presence of the Lord because He inhabits the praises of His people and in His presence is fullness of joy. Jesus tells us some curious things that should be a source of joy for us. Luke 6, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you. And revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Amen. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. And it's how they treated all the people before you who did what was right. So it's a good sign. Is that what you feel like doing? They wrote another article about us on the internet. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. There's something in you that doesn't feel like that at all. But Jesus, is this a suggestion from Jesus? Is this a recommendation? Or is this an instruction? He's telling you, I'll tell you how you're going to get through it. (laughs) You're going to look at the big picture and you're going to recognize this isn't the sign that something's gone wrong, this is to be expected. This is how they treat me, he's telling us. In Acts 5, they called the apostles in and they beat them and commanded them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Rejoicing. Oh, God, you've apparently seen fit to allow us to bear witness to your name. And we're not going to let you down. We're going to endure this suffering with our eyes set on the joy that is before us. James 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In other words, he's saying there's something on the other side of this. You need to have a perspective that allows you to, to realize this is for a purpose.
1: This is going to produce
0: something in your life that's going to bear good fruit. I'm going to read you another passage I didn't write down. But I thought of it when Brother Rossi was ministering on glory earlier today. I love this passage from Romans 5. Beginning of the chapter, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Scripture tells us that in several places. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Something is going to be revealed that we have hope in. And it's, it's an already but not yet, as we heard earlier today. It's already happening in the sense that this, this glory is being revealed through our humbled and weakened flesh. And yet it's pointing towards a future glory that will be revealed in perfect measure. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because if you just trust in God, the circumstance will work itself out. Sorry, I departed from the text, didn't I? Why does hope not disappoint? Because the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that He's given to us. You can't lose if that is your joy. If your chief joy is in the presence of God, with the people of God, there's nothing the enemy that can throw at us that isn't going to, in the end, increase that joy. That's why we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Oh boy, we're going through something again. This is going to be for the glory of God. I'm going to rejoice in God my Savior. This is going to be another opportunity to prove to the devil himself and anybody else who cares to notice that the people of God go through things differently than the, those who sorrow as who have no hope. Amen. We do not sorrow as those who have no hope. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. First Peter 4. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. It's almost like he's saying, if you do a little suffering, rejoice a little. And and the more you suffer, rejoice more. Because you're participating in the afflictions that belong to Christ. You're filling up what's lacking for the sake of the church. This is going to benefit everybody. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Rejoice because this is pointing towards more joy. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Now, I want to share a couple things with you that I found interesting. This is one of the first places that the word rejoice is used in the Bible. It's the first place, it's the second time the word is used. It's the first time is in a personal interaction, I think, in Genesis. But it's the first time it's used in an instructive way in the chronology of history. I think it's in Leviticus also. This is in Deuteronomy, but this would have occurred before Leviticus. Deuteronomy 12, this is the chapter where they're being given instructions about the place that is called by His name. So in this chapter, you've heard some of us teach on this before, but in this chapter, He's telling them, the Lord is speaking to His people and telling them, you are not going to do what you're doing here today forever. Today, everyone is doing, I'm paraphrasing, but each of you are doing as you choose. You're doing what's right in your own eyes. But when you come into the land that the Lord gives you, you're not going to do that anymore. You're going to go to the place of His name, the place of His choosing. And there, you're going to seek Him. There, you're going to dwell. So, he's talking about a significant change that happens in the history of the people of Israel And here is the context where he uses this word rejoice. You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. This is the place where the temple is going to be built. This is the place of sacrifice, and you've probably heard teaching about this, most of you, that this, is the, this temple is now the body of Christ. It's still the place of sacrifice. It's still the place called by His name. It's still the place where His presence dwells. But then He gives them instruction about the posture of their heart in this place. Next sentence, "...and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice." In all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. When you lay down your will and your choosing, and you finally come to that place of surrender, and you come home, this is what you're supposed to do. (laughs) You are to rejoice in the Lord and what He's given you. I read Psalm 87. That's the one that we get that song from that we sing. O city of God. Glorious things are spoken about you. All my springs of joy are in you. (laughs) All my investments, all my happiness, all my purpose, it's all there. This one and that one were born in Zion. John tells us, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. To believe that God has a city prepared for those who love him, that he has a people, that he has a place that will sustain generations to come. Can there be anything greater to rejoice about? That that dream might be true? Brother Zach said, we we dared to dream or something like that. We started dreaming. Could it be? Maybe I'm not even going to see it, he said. Maybe it's just going to be for my kids and my grandkids to discover. But could there be a place? You know, and it's like this unwillingness to be satisfied with anything less. God is going to reward. What's that one from Isaiah? I didn't write it down about give the Lord no rest. Give yourselves no rest until he makes what? Jerusalem, the praise of the whole earth. The Psalms tell us that the city of the Mount Zion is the joy of the whole earth. And remember this one? I didn't write this one down either. So what happens on the other end of that determination to keep Jerusalem as the chief joy. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, that's the promise, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing or with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. We've tasted some of that already, haven't we? And there's even more. God help us to keep sowing the seeds. Is joy still a condition of membership in the city of God? Is it a new, this is a New Testament concept? Just have a few more scriptures for you here. In the temple of God, the house of God, the city of God. Philippians 3, Paul tells us, "'Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord.' Not a recommendation, commandment, rejoice in the Lord, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Do you think he 's fed up with those of the circumcision he 's a little tired of people thinking that this is the pathway that pleases God if we can just if we can just live in some kind of uh, Imposed, self-imposed religion and, and denial of, of things and, and that we can take pride in will somehow please God. He's saying, "Beware of all that, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. How can we be part of the Israel of God? He's saying, well, this is is how you know what it is. When you find the people who rejoice in Christ Jesus and who worship God in the Spirit and have no confidence in the flesh, you found it. (laughs) Hebrews 3 and 6 says, We are His house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Hallelujah. What is the source of this joy? We've already talked about it a lot here, but what is really, in a word, the source of this joy? Psalm 46 and 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. Amen. Remember what Jesus stands up in John 7 at the last and greatest day of the feast. If anyone is thirsty, amen, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water thus he spoke of the spirit that would be poured out hallelujah thank you jesus thank you jesus joy in the spirit oh i got to read you one more this is first peter one in this verse six in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory." joy unspeakable does that remind you of anything it makes me think immediately of the passage that says when we don't even know what to pray the spirit prays through us joy unspeakable have you ever been so overcome with joy that you did not have the words to express the fountain coming out of your heart Thank you, Jesus. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's the glory Brother Rossi was talking about when you see on someone's face that nothing else that's going on around them matters because they're in the presence of God. Thank you, Jesus. The radiance that you see, that you feel in your heart. Unspeakable joy. That's for here and now. My mom finally found that scripture. In your presence is fullness of joy. And after failing to find it in the book of Acts, I mean the book of Psalms from what I understand, if I remember this correctly, she found it in the book of Acts because Peter quotes it at the day of Pentecost when they're all full of the holy spirit and what is everybody saying? These guys are drunk. They're out of their minds. That's called a sacrifice of joy. Who wants to look like they're drunk? Who wants people to think that they're drunk? This requires some humility to be lost in the presence of God, to be overcome by the Spirit in this kind of way. This requires something. And, and when Peter stands up to explain, he quotes this passage from the Psalms. Only in, in my Bible, he, He says it like it's happened. In the Psalms, he says, You will make known to me the path of life. But Peter quotes it here, and he says, You have made known to me the ways of life. You make me full of joy in your presence. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus knew what it meant to rejoice in the Spirit. In Luke 10 is when he sends out the seventy. Okay, This is a foretaste of things to come. This is a foretaste of the body of Christ when a measure of the Spirit would be given to each one and a multiplication of grace and power is going to spread like wildfire through the land. So he sent them out and it says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And then it says something, I think this is the strongest a depiction of Jesus' joy in the New Testament to my remembrance. In that hour, when Jesus saw what happened, a foretaste of the body, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. There's a message in that, isn't there? You have hidden these things from the sophisticated. You have hidden these things from the calm, cool, and collected. And you've revealed them through those who will come as a little child. Why does he say we have to come as a little child? He says, Most assuredly, I tell you, you will not enter the kingdom of God unless you come as a little child. When we want to get a depiction of what the purest form of joy looks like, can you improve on a small child reacting to the presence of, say, their father? I have an 18-month-old. Oh, boy, I'm missing him so bad. And I know what's going to happen when I get home. Daddy! You know, it's not, I wonder if I look cool. <laughs> doesn't enter their minds because the joy of the relationship is all that matters. I'm in his presence. He loves me. There's a possibility here that I could hear him say, "This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased." And that's my chief joy. That matters more to me than the opinions of anybody. I don't care if they think I'm drunk. Even that's going to somehow be a testimony. You've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. There are some things you're never going to know. They're never going to be revealed until we shed our stupid sophistication and are willing to just be a child before God. Paul says it even more explicitly in Romans 14. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you're looking for something else, you're gonna look a long time. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, when you found it, you're not looking anymore. When you found joy in the Spirit, you found the kingdom of God. Of course, you know what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy. Second on the list, I think that means it's important. Well, I don't have the gift of joy. You know, people have different personalities. And I'm just not the bubbly, effusive, enthusiastic type. Guess what? I don't have much pity for you. Because I'm not either. I used to say things like that. But as far as I can read, joy is not listed in the gifts. That one has this gift and the other has another gift. Okay, any more than love or humility. I don't have the gift of love. (laughs) I don't have the gift of humility. It's not a gift. It's a decision to submit to God. To surrender your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength to Him. Amen. And joy is the same thing. It's just a decision. (laughs) Amen. I will rejoice and be glad. Romans 15 and 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then a couple more that I know you're already thinking of. 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice as often as you can. (laughs) Rejoice the majority of the time. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Almost as if those things are connected. Rejoice always, or you're quenching the Spirit. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And in case you didn't get it the first time, I will say it again. Rejoice! (laughs) Do you think this is an emphasis in the Word of God? Now I want to just tell you a couple of stories, if I may. This is another mundane example, but it stuck with me because the Lord taught me something through it and still does. I'm not preaching to the choir today. I'm preaching to myself because I still need this. But I was remembering a time when I was young dad would know how old I was, I don't remember, but um, my parents had uh, decided to take us on a trip. They'd worked it out with my grandparents. We were all going to travel together in their motorhome, which was like a dream come true for a child. You know, we're going to ride in the motorhome, and they were going to take us to Florida, and we were going to do lots of things that we wouldn't do today, but We didn't know better, and um, they they sat us kids down, and they told us, here's the plan. You know, they're surprising us. We're going to go with Grandma and Granddad. We're going to go to Florida and do this and that. We're going to ride in the motorhome, and um, my brothers, as I recall, were real excited, but me, I had recently learned that it's not cool to be excited. So I was, oh wow, okay. I re- still remember my mom looking at me and saying, "What's the matter, Danny? You, do you, you, don't you want to do this?" Sure. I mean, inside my heart is pounding out of my chest. I can't believe my parents are actually proposing this. I mean, I would have wouldn't have even asked for it. Now they're going to actually do it. But yeah, sure. Yeah. What is that? What is that? Pride. Pride. Yeah <laughs> My parents had to talk to me about it and say, "You know that's not a good thing you You not getting excited about this. that's not good. It's not? No, it's not. I think it makes the Lord angry when He holds out such gifts to us and and Our reaction is not, oh, God, let's sell the rest and buy it today. But instead we're like, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. We'll think about it. I think it dishonors the incredible inheritance that he offers to us. Are you willing to be overwhelmed with gratitude? Overwhelmed with hope? Overwhelmed with joy? at the goodness of God. One more story, some of you have heard this one before. We used to have this cat. His name was Oscar. The Wheelers adopted him for a while. When they moved, he he came back home. He liked them better than us. Y'all probably fed him better than we did. We neglected poor Oscar. I've never been much on cats. but. Uh, Oscar was good as far as cats go. He would regularly bring us offerings, (laughs) dead mice and gophers and things, and put them on the step to show that he was earning his keep and so forth. Well, he would come into the house sometimes, and I never thought I would allow that, but he he kept to himself pretty much, and so I didn't didn't mind him too much. Well, he would come into the house, and he was pretty smart, and he was pretty good. You know, he never made a mess in the house. For that, I'll give him credit. But um, he had figured out that if he got in the house, we tried to make sure he was out for the night, but sometimes we didn't notice he'd be under the couch or whatever. We didn't notice he was in the house, and so we would go to bed with Oscar still in the house. Well, in the middle of the night, he would need to use the bathroom, and he would come and rake on the blinds in our room. like that. Well, uh, the first time that he did that, we, what is wrong with this stupid cat? Put him out of the room and go back to sleep. Well, then there was a mess in the house in the morning. And we're like, oh, well, he did try to tell us. So, he would rake on the blinds like this so we would learn, and, but I'll tell you, it would never happen until three in the morning, and usually on some night when you're just extra exhausted, and you've gone to bed at one, and you just fallen asleep, and you hear this Oh, brother. And so you get up and you go open the door for Oscar. And what would he do? Would he run for the door? No, sir. When he was desperate, he would rake the blinds, <coughs> eow, <coughs> eow, until he would get out of bed. It kind of makes you think of Jesus when he tells the parable about, you know, <laughs> if your friend comes at night, you know, my children are in bed with me, and, you know, because of his persistence, you're going to get up. So he would do that, and we would get up, and you'd go to the door, and you'd open the door, come on, Oscar, and Oscar would... It would make me so mad. (laughs) You had a desperate need 30 seconds ago. But now you're on your own time. I've opened the door for you, done something for you that you could never do, given you the opportunity of a lifetime. And you're going to act like you could care less. You'll walk through that door later. Oh, it would make me so mad. Oscar would have to hide under the couch. <laughs> I won't tell you all the things that I would do to make sure that he would get out that door. <laughs> Amen. But you know my point, don't you? If we're lukewarm, the Lord is going to spew us out of His mouth. Amen. We have, a, we have a, uh, a poodle also that is in the house. We'll do the same thing. You know, we—if we, we, if we the, exactly the same thing, only with the dog, the dog will scratch on the door, whine a little bit. Listen, if I don't get up, scratch a little more. Come to the door, <laughs> tail wagging. It's you. You answered. <laughs> runs to the door and waits for me to get there. And as soon as I open the door, whew, out the door. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Let's not be cats. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Let's not be cats. Let's be eager. There's a lot of humility in eagerness. Our eagerness is how we acknowledge our gratitude. It's how we acknowledge that He's God and not us, that He's supplying something for us we could have never supplied for ourselves. Are you willing? I'll leave you with that challenge. Are you willing? To be childlike in your response to God. You know, I can tell you honestly, the the people that I have been privileged to know in my life, who were the most used of God, the most learned in the scriptures, the most, some of the most intelligent, gifted people I've known that were the most used of God, have also been the most childlike in their response to the movement of God, in their gratitude for the smallest things that God would speak or God would provide. You think about it. It's probably true for you too. That people you would look at as examples of the faith are those who are most childlike because it's a way of saying they're humble. It's a humility that God commands from us when He says, Rejoice always, in everything give thanks. Are you willing to be overcome? Are you willing to be possessed by the Spirit? Does it scare you like it once scared me when a brother gets up and can't contain it and has to run around the room because of what God has done? Do you say, are we all going to have to do that? Is that where this thing is going tonight? Can we kill that little thing tonight? Amen. Amen. Can we just lose our self-consciousness before God? Amen. And treasure every morsel that he speaks to us. Oh, God, I am going to run for the door. If you open the door, I'm running through it with joy. I'm going to dance through the door. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, God.